0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Open Mic, Episode 101. Hopefully, you've seen Episode 100. I'm very proud of it. We brought back some past guests, some past exonerees, and it was just a lot of fun. Right now, I'm shooting from Phoenix, Arizona, right off Camelback Mountain, where I'm taking a hike later today. Excited for our 101st guest. Robert Riggs is a top investigative journalist in our country. He's the host of a podcast called True Crime Reporters, and his series Free to Kill, he exposes corruption in the parole board system. And if you're a fan of Open Mic, you know we talk a lot about parole. Parole boards often let out vicious killers who go on to commit new crimes while refusing to parole the wrongfully convicted because they don't admit to their crimes and show remorse. And we've had people on our show who has talked about not admitting guilt because they didn't want to lie. They'd rather stay in prison for a crime they didn't commit, which is crazy. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life.
1: thanks for having me on and congratulations on
0: getting to 101. That's tough to do. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Robert is one of the country's top investigative reporters. You you've been on CBS evening, evening news, CBS 60 minutes, ABC nightline, as well as local stations. Tell me about some of the hot stories you broke or covered as an investigative reporter.
1: Well, the first season of, of uh, true crime reporter is a series called, Uh, Free to Kill. It's actually now going to be made into a five-part docudrama on a major streaming channel. And it focuses on the worst serial killer in Texas history who had been on death row. His sentence was commuted to life in 1972, but who would have imagined that, you know, he was eligible for parole, but who would imagine what happened? Well, it happened. And there were two uh, converging points of corruption in this state. There was political corruption in which, both the Democrats and the Republicans had always talked tough on crime, they ran on crime, but they didn't spend money to build prisons to hold uh, particularly violent inmates. And we had a prison overcrowding problem and the system was about to be taken over by a federal judge. So they secretly began releasing 150 inmates a day. Uh, and finally, they ran out of hot check writers and they got into the worst of the worst. And in the context of all that, some the, the chairman of the board and others decided they could make money off of this and they started selling paroles and Kenneth McDuff walks out of prison, a serial killer, and literally resumes his killing spree the next day. It goes on for two and a half years.
0: Holy cow. So, I mean, we, I mentioned in the open that we did, we've, we've talked about parole, um, but what did you, you know, you've done investigative reporting on this, you know, on Free to Kill. I mean, what did you uncover about, you know, parole boards? And give me some insight because we, we, we haven't really had an insider to talk mm-hmm. about parole.
1: Well, here, the parole board is appointed by the governor, it's a political appointment. And at the time that I did these investigations, it was a political plum. Uh, people got on there, they had no knowledge of criminal justice, sociology, psych, nothing, nothing. You know they're just bringing what they think is their common sense now the other thing is that uh that that movie image that the uh that the inmate comes down and sits down before the board and they have this logical set of questioning and stuff what's well, in texas that's a myth uh we found that maybe one of three members there would be three deciding uh Uh, one of three might talk to the inmate, but typically they just passed a file around and looked at the file. And, uh, um, and there was a, the thing I thought was really broken. There, there was, there was really no matrix to assess. Is this person a future risk to society? Uh, have they improved their life while they've been in the prison? Uh, and in the case of Macduff, um, We found that, you know, the parole board people had described him as a model prisoner. When I got his file, uh, which was leaked to me, his prison files, uh, he was anything but that. He's a big troublemaker in prison, Uh, had associations with the Aryan Brotherhood. Um, You know, you you, even internal parole officers said he was a ticking time bomb. So I, I still think the parole system around the state is. Is broke. I mean, there needs to be, uh, I think, highly trained and procedures and a, a matter of analysis, because there are people that should get out. But I don't. I just I haven't seen any scientifically based method to assess everyone.
0: That's really interesting. You know, when you said the movies, the first movie that came to me was Shawshank Redemption, uh, because that had a couple of good parole board scenes. Um, and I mean, they, I've seen that movie a million times and that just sticks in my head and they are looking for you. I mean, it, you know, like in the movies and is this, they, they, they want people to admit their guilt, take responsibility. Um, it feels like that's the only litmus test to whether or not they're going to get out. If somebody is innocent and they keep proclaiming their innocence, there's no way they're going to get paroled. I mean, is that still, do you think that's true?
1: I do. Uh, you know, in the case of McDuff, uh, some of the members there, this went through different panels. So they didn't even open his file. They didn't even they just rubber stamped uh, what the other members are doing. Now there was corruption in play. But, uh, you know, they basically like well, this member that looked at the file, maybe or maybe talked to him, they, they're, they're opposed. I'm going to oppose or uh, vote for them. So what we see in the movies, it's a big, big myth.
0: It sounds it. So, you know, we cover a lot of uh, wrongful conviction stuff here on Open Mic. And, you know, we've heard predictions of thousands to tens of thousands of innocent people being locked up. Some of the people that we've interviewed, they got a break because an investigative journalist like yourself wrote a story about it. What's your sense? Do you think that there is a enough journalists covering uh, these type of wrongful convictions or potentially wrongful convictions um, to expose this this tragic injustice
1: no journalism has been gutted uh, and it started back in 2008 with the recession and that's uh, I was at CBS then and you know there was a day in March 2008 that literally hundreds of Correspondents, reporters, producers, you name it, camera people, editors were fired, were turned loose. And uh, in all the networks, all the major stations across the country, uh, I was on the top of the list because I did investigative reporting. And the big media companies, especially today, they do not like true investigative reporting. It's expensive, it's time consuming, and you might get sued. And so i'd have councils tell me that you know we're all well robert you may have it right we know you got all the facts but we don't want to spend money defending this so uh, they just don't want to do it and uh and with the the stresses on the organizations now with you know it's the internet they don't have the revenue they it's pretty uh thin very very thin and the other thing that's happened is that you know the news Business is taking sides about opinion, and it's either right or left, and I don't really ever see much in the center anymore. Um, so, um, I, I it really is up to people like you and uh, independent projects to shine the light on this stuff. And you basically you need to bring it to a reporter or the media on a silver platter for them to do it. The sad state of affairs. Yeah, that, no, I, that covers. You know wars and you name it. For instance, I was an embedded reporter in Iraq during the invasion in two thousand three. I don't think many of these these news organizations even do that much anymore
0: because of the expense. It is sad. That's I never really looked back at it to two thousand eight, but it makes complete sense what you just said. Um, you know, one story that I it, it is a national story that I think should be a national story that sounds like nobody's ever going to run it. But it's it's case after case that we cover. Um, it, it comes down to a bad court-appointed attorney who pushes deals on innocent clients because they have too many cases, or they're 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 just running around. They don't have enough time to do all the work, and it feels like it's it's a national story. But I think you just answered the question: Why we're never going to see a big story about this? That story
1: would require a lot of footwork. Just to, you know, if you're doing it in this county alone, of you know, you're going to have to do a lot of data investigation, collecting data and everything, and uh, lots of interviews. I mean, it's a team project. In the old days, and early on, I was a, a member of a, something called the Investigative Reporters and Editors, I.R.E. It's still in existence, but in the old days, you had these crack investigative teams. Like I knew reporters at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and they took on these big team investigations. It's all been gutted. It's it's gone. Uh, but it would it would certainly be needed. And, you know, listen, any any reporter worth their salt that's around the courthouse, they can get a sense of this, that, uh, you know, these are not not the tip top counsels. I, I mean, almost, you know, I always kind of had a feeling It was distasteful to me in some sense that there were there was just a gravy train going on with some of these court-appointed attorneys. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: That, uh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I haven't got the senses it's creed, but these are just, a lot of them are just bottom-of-the-barrel lawyers who, yep. who you yes. know, have, and they're making $500 for a murder trial, and they need to do 20 murder trials a month to pay their bills, and they don't have time to do a cross-examination, let alone research the trial, let alone find an expert witness, and it just makes me want to vomit. And I know there's a lot of good court-appointed attorneys, and I know there's a lot of good, um, you know, attorneys who do this type of work. But when it gets down to a wrongful conviction and you look back, you know, I think one out of the 20 people I've talked to said they had a good defense attorney. And the rest were, yeah, this guy phoned it in. I never met him before the trial. He didn't call a witness. I had eight alibi witnesses. He didn't call it. And as a lawyer, I'm like, why didn't you stand up and start yelling? Get the judge's attention, but these are mostly uneducated people. They don't have any money. It's just a a huge vicious cycle, sad state of affairs. And um,
1: well, you know, I almost you you get the feeling it's like this factory, and it's doesn't work very well. I also think it it's contributing to uh, the backlog of inmates in jails, and we we've you know we've had quote bail reform going on, but. You know, some of that's turning into disaster, especially in this state, because you know, there's not some common sense going on. But they're trying you know, there's suits and they're trying to relieve the backlog of the jail. You know, there are people who are spending way too long in jail. We need to be selective about, you know, who is a threat to society. They don't do a good job of that. But I think part of that goes back to um the Court appointed counsels and not just an inefficiency in the system.
0: I agree. Um, have you ever sat through a trial or covered a trial where you've heard about so called scientific evidence on bite marks or baby uh, shaken baby syndrome or even arson cases that just didn't make sense?
1: No, I don't recall any, but uh, you know, I, some of the ones I covered was pretty, you know, they were serial killers and stuff like that it was uh, it's pretty pretty obvious but i spent a lot of i've spent a lot of time i've probably been in every maximum security prison in texas and you know there's always an inmate going to try to tell you their story um you know and of course unfortunately everybody says they're innocent but you do hear those cases and you're you're like wow you know how they end up in here, or is this really appropriate or the sentence seemed onerous? You many years ago, I got a, an award for excellence in reporting for the Dallas Crime Commission and the room is full of the, the FBI and, you know, DAs and all this judges. And I started off by saying, well, you know, I've been in every state prison. Now, let me tell you something. Our state prison system is a monument to failure in this state. Well, the whole room flinched like we're going to take the award back. but. I really I came to believe that that we're in there. I thought it was disproportionately minority population, uneducated. I felt that somehow the education system is failing, uh, societal problems. Um, you know, I mean, it's a it's a microcosm of problems in our society.
0: As we're talking about reporting, um, you know, what we see in a lot of our cases here in Michigan. Are um, that the police and prosecutors are lying? They hide exculpatory evidence to get convictions. This crazy tunnel vision, and and I'm and I'm reading these and I'm talking to these people and I'm hearing about these stories and I'm like, why hasn't somebody covered this? Why isn't the media all over this? You might have already answered my question that it's budget cuts, but it just it it just seems it's just mind blowing to me that the public doesn't know what's happening.
1: Well, and, you know, the way things are looked at today, is it, unfortunately, many organizations look at it, is it click-worthy? Is it going to get clicks? Uh, I can see them kind of getting uh, in the mode of, well, you know, we've we've done those stories, you know, move on, let's do another subject, we're tired of that. Uh, But however, you know, we are in the age of the internet where you can be uh, your own advocate, own reporter for issues. And that, to me, that's the solution. It has to be some uh, independently funded organization uh, to do this. I do not see the mainstream media of what we've known. I do not see them doing it.
0: Which is, which is a problem because yeah. like I said earlier, some of these people got out of prison because of reporters. Yeah. And this is probably before 2008. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I'll give you an example.
1: Uh I'm a member of a group here that was set up after 9-11 across the country called InfraGuard. It's a partnership with the FBI and people in business, the business world, uh, to have a line of communication about protecting infrastructure. And you get a background check and all, but you can also get briefings and talks. And so uh, the chief judge of the Northern District uh, of Texas came to speak and she sees me in the audience and, you know i'm out doing it my own now and she says "Riggs, where the heck have you been where are you and she then begins to rail about how the federal court system is no longer covered by the media in dallas and she starts ticking off big story stories in business drug dealing immigration all kinds of issues huge issues affecting the city no one is there and you know she even noted that that you know a recent case big big case that the reporter had come for the morning testimony and left and never came back and wrote a story. And the afternoon testimony completely changed what had happened in the morning. So it's there. There's just a
0: blind spot now for criminal
1: justice across the board.
0: Wow. That's really interesting. Never thought about the judges. Some of them want the coverage, need the coverage. <clears throat> so tell us, on true crime reporter, you you started talking a little bit about this five part series, but tell you know if people tune in, what kind you know tell us about one of the crazy cases that you've covered on that.
1: Well, uh, okay, so we're working on a, a follow up series now called "Don't Fence Me In." It's about notorious prison breaks in Texas and fugitives, and I focus on a. I cover this back, and I've kind of followed up to the now. Uh, a he, he worked at a grocery store, stuff a grocery store stalker, and uh, he tried to move up in management and um, uh, just frustrated, got fired. So he just decided to hold the place up uh, like an, an armored guard and stuff, and um, did a number of these robberies, gets caught, uh, escapes while going to trial. And is later caught again. And boy, they, they dropped the hammer on him. 80 year prison sentence. He gets to Texas in a Texas prison now. And uh, after four years, he's he, well, here's what's really interesting. During the George Bush campaign on inauguration night, Bush talks tough on crime. And the inmate writes his mom a letter, say, I have no hope of parole. Uh, I, I'm going to have to I'm going to break out. And, and he's a smart guy. You always end up rooting for him. He's so smart and bright, but he shuts off the power to the prison during Thanksgiving when they're on a skeleton staff and escapes and uh, comes back to Dallas, robs some of the same grocery stores he had robbed before, and really starts snubbing his nose at the FBI so much to the point. It was embarrassment for the FBI. They had teams out everywhere staking out grocery stores trying to get this guy never got him. Uh, but finally, uh, two fugitive hunters from the prison system, they track him down, bring him back. He almost, he almost escapes again. Wow. Oh yeah. I mean, we, the process, we, they call, I called him the energizer Bunny. And what,
0: year, what years were this
1: Robert that starts in, uh, gosh, when is that 95 or so? And I take it up to today. And what ended up happening is that uh, it, they put him into solitary confinement, which is administrative segregation here in a um, supermax unit. And as one of the investigators said, he's so far back in the prison system you'd have to feed him with a slingshot. <laughs> and there he is. And I mean, it's it's a uh, you know he's now he's in his fifties and gray and still there. But he was always saying, you know swearing i i'm gonna get out now texas is interesting they'll spend a million dollars on escape their their philosophy here is that if we let one get away they'll all be going over the walls so boy they just they put it out you know their whole thing is we don't want to ever be known for having
0: an inmate on the ground anywhere um wow yeah. That, and, sounds like, that sounds like a TV movie waiting to happen or a, a regular movie yeah. waiting to happen. Yeah.
1: And um, today we're working on a, the second part of this series, and it is about a, a woman in 1955 in uh, Pasadena, Texas, south of Houston, uh, murdered her eight and nine year old sons. But she uh, she dismembered their bodies. What? And she. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a sad story. It's a, it's bizarre. She was represented by the great Percy Foreman. I'm sure you know mm-hmm. uh, Percy's reputation, never lost a case. Yeah. And he pled her out. I mean, he knew he had no chase. It, we, this thing was nationwide headlines. And um, she gets a life sentence. The prosecutor tells the press afterwards, you know, she won't even be, she won't be eligible for parole in 34 years. Well, the Texas Parole Board, they let her out, uh, 25 years later. And after she goes to a halfway house and absconds and disappears for 16 years, uh, it, it appeared. Yeah. She goes off to Idaho meets a guy, a widower, and it appears that she probably killed him and takes over his social security fraud over his benefits. And I've got the, uh, uh, a member, a fugitive task force member from the FBI, who tracked her down, and they brought her back to prison, age seventy-five, and uh, then they, about three years later, she had failing health, uh, was legally blind. They released her on parole, and then she died at age ninety in twenty twelve in a nursing home located near one of the women's units. But it it is a case of twists and turns that are amazing, and. You know we've got our confession, uh, and you're always, you know, you just sit there and you hear these things, especially with children. You're like, "What in the world? It happened. going on in this woman's mind, or it happened in the-? You know, you're always wondering: is it nature or nurture? Or-? So, yeah.
0: How, how the heck did they let this woman out ever for such a heinous crime? Uh, I, I mean, I know, I'm I know,
1: shocked. I know exactly what you're talking about. You just sit here and you shake your head over it. Now, and one of the problems here is that um, the parole files and the prison files are secret. It's against the law to make them public. And so in my case, the way I was able to break open so many of my stories about the corruption, uh, I developed some sources and they started leaking them to me at their own legal risk. Uh, And... You know, I I I mean, I think these these uh, case files would they would reveal flaws in the cases and prosecutions as well if you really dug into them.
0: I can't wait to hear these podcasts. Tell me, tell me, and my viewers and listeners how we can find them.
1: Uh, We're on all of your favorite podcast apps. True Crime Reporter. Uh, I've got coming in to join me a former federal prosecutor who uh, he prosecuted the Branch Davidians, the case. He's done terrorist and everything. And he is actually we kind of reunited. He's in the first this first series about Kenneth McDuff because uh, he was a young federal prosecutor and no one. You know, McDuff was the suspect and what have you, but no one really got out there and after it. And one of, one of the sad things is, is that Big Duff, like serial killers are prone to do, had been preying on um, sex workers uh, that worked certain streets. And these four women were all meth addicts at the time. And he had come off on the radar screen with police, and they just kind of wrote it off as that, eh, you know, it's sex workers, who cares? And there, there's that attitude out there. But this prosecutor had a different attitude and it was interesting um uh, he got the the u.s marshal service to come in and he got one of the major task force leaders who was considered their best fugitive hunter in the world if they needed somebody overseas to come back uh he's the guy that went for for instance he went with the uh airborne rangers when they went in on noriega uh he had the most uh, interesting comment we talked about this and he said you know work in this case i heard that that the police just sort of ignored this, but he said, let me tell you the way I looked at this and I had my team look at it. Citizens and these women, they're sheep. They are sheep and we're the sheep dogs and we should be protecting them. And they're somebody's daughter. I don't care you know, what walk of life, what ethnicity, they are someone's daughter and they, they don't have a right to, for this to happen to them. We're the sheep dogs. I had the greatest respect for them after that.
0: I, that, that, I I mean, I love that. Well, on on that note, Robert, I, you know, a Peabody award-winning investigative reporter really uh, love having you on the show. I love hearing these stories. Um, They're mind blowing to me. We're going to go and check out your podcast. I'm going to go check it out today and I hope everybody else does. And just thanks for being on open mic and thanks for doing what you do and to keep exposing all this crazy stuff out there.
1: Well, thanks for what you do. And you know what struck me is, I mean, I see these cases where they're kind of rubber stamp releases. and then it's uh,
0: you know, it's like moving a mountain uh, when you've got evidence of innocence. That's a different topic, and it's yeah. yes, it is. And it's really difficult. And if I had great reporters like you helping me on every one of these cases, we'd get a lot more people out of prison who didn't commit the crime. I know it. I know it. No. And there's some people here in Michigan, Bill Proctor and others who are investigative journalists who are helping. But it's it's an it's an epidemic. And it's it, at least in, in Michigan. And I'm now learning in many, many other states. Um, no states are spared by this. And it's it's sad. And we we need to investigate because these people don't have the funds. Uh, they don't have the they don't have to know how to how to do it. It's 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 not easy. And they don't
1: have the sophistication to question and ask the right questions. You know, they're they're not coming from the certainly the educational backgrounds that you and I are.
0: That's a major problem and similarity. You're absolutely right, Robert. You're absolutely right. All right. Well, thank you again. And thank you so much to you again soon. Enjoy that hike today. I will. I will. Thank you. I am literally going to uh, subscribe to that podcast right now. Those stories that he was saying, they're almost, I can't believe there aren't movies about every single one of them. Um, Hope you enjoyed that episode. Like it, share it, comment, tell us what else you want to hear, and we will bring it to you here on Open Mic. That was episode 101. Can't believe we are over 100. But thank you for your support. Thank you for sharing the episodes as you do, and um, I'll see you next time.